I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversation, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a very sacred episode for me. My guest today is Jean Kilborn. And Jean has been someone that had an impact on me in 1989 when I saw her give her talk titled Killing Us Softly. Fast forward to today, she's been inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. She has done incredible work with media, advertisement. There's so much. I just, as I always say, we're just going to jump right in. Okay, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am beyond honored to be sitting here today with Jean Kilborn, who is our guest, and I can't wait for all of you to hear this episode. Jean, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. It is It is truly an honor. I first saw your work and and it's unusual for me to remember dates but it was in 1989 and i have remembered your work since then so jean can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are well um i'm jean kilborn as far as i know i was the first person to seriously study the image of women in advertising i started uh collecting ads in the late 1960s And I didn't intend to make a career out of it. I just was interested and put together a slide presentation, which I eventually made into a film called Killing Us Softly, Advertising's Image of Women, which I first made in 1979. And I've remade it three times since then. And I've also made several other films. In the 70s, I became interested in studying alcohol and tobacco advertising as well. So I made slideshows and then films on those topics. And I've published a couple of books. The first one was called Can't Buy My Love, which is about advertising and addiction. And then uh, another book uh, called So Sexy, So Soon, which is about the sexualization of childhood. So I've been dealing with a range of topics, violence against women, eating disorders, addiction, all kinds of things and traveling all around the country and to some extent the world for the past pretty much half century uh, talking about these issues. 
It is so powerful, the messages that we internalize. And I'm like literally just going to jump right in. You say in one of your talks that we are so influenced by media and advertisement without knowing it that somebody in your audience once said, oh, I'm not influenced by advertisement at all. And he was sitting there wearing a Gap t-shirt because what he didn't realize is subliminate, forgive me, everyone, sub, whether it's subliminal, I can't even say Subliminally. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Or literally, we are bombarded bombarded by images all day long. You look like you were going to say something. Go ahead. Well, just I think now that it's we're exposed to about 5,000 ads every day, and that's everything, you know, I mean, social media and, and people wearing T-shirts and product placement and everything else. And yet we all believe, really pretty much all of us believe that we're not influenced by us. And and the reason for that is that we don't pay conscious attention to them. And that's true. We don't. So, in fact, one of the things I've tried to do with my work is to bring these message, messages into consciousness to make them conscious, because I think doing that reduces their power and it gives the power back to us. The advertisers are very well aware that we feel that we're not influenced. And that is in many ways gives them more power because it means that we're not on guard, that their messages slip beneath our radar, and that they can affect us most deeply on a very emotional level and mostly subconsciously. What are the messages that both women and men are getting? Now, I know a lot of your work does gear towards women in advertisement, but you also talk about the fact, first of all, men in advertisement, and also that it creates this unrealistic expectation for men of what they think the quote unquote ideal woman is supposed to look like. So what, what are the images we're being bombarded with? If, if, if that's the right way of asking. Yeah, well, there are so many, but uh, first of all, uh, all my work has always been uh, for, for women as well as for men. And I've said from the very beginning that, the negative image of women doesn't affect just women. It also affects men. And it affects men in terms of how they, what they expect from women, of course, and what they think the ideal image should be. But it also, and we can talk about this a little bit later, affects men because there's so much contempt for the feminine and for femininity and for everything that's associated with women in the culture and in the advertising. And this affects how men feel, not only about women, but how about everything that gets labeled feminine in themselves. So it's it, this is an issue that is of extraordinary importance, I think, to both men and to women. And certainly when I titled my film, Killing Us Softly, by us, I meant all of us, you know, women and men. But one of the first messages that we get from as is what an ideal woman should look like. And this has changed a little bit in the year, many years I've been doing this, but really not that much. And uh, for the most part, um, the, a woman who's considered attractive and desirable is going to be young. She's going to be white or at least light-skinned. Um, she's going to be very thin. And she's going to have, for the most part, very sort of, in a way, regular conventional features, as it were, but, you know, symmetrical. There's a certain look that uh, is considered beautiful. And not only then does this become the ideal image that this is what women are supposed to aspire to, but it also defines what's not beautiful. 
you know, what's not okay. And definitely women get the message that it's not okay to be anything other than very thin. It's not okay to grow older or to show any signs of aging. It's not okay to um, not be perfect looking. So it's a, it's a message that uh, basically excludes everybody and that makes really all women, including, by the way, the supermodels, feel anxious and insecure. Because, I mean, I was a model myself when, a long time ago, which was, I mean, obviously a long time ago, because that's, you know, it's only when you're very young. And I never met a more insecure, excuse me, a more insecure group of women than, than the models. Because if your value uh, depends on how you look, and if your livelihood depends on that, anything that's going to interfere with that becomes a huge threat, you know, whether it's, you know, a, a blemish or growing older um, or gaining weight. Uh, so it becomes, uh, it's, it, it becomes very challenging. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but don't they use very young models to, to advertise for adult clothing? So like, don't they have like 16 year olds in women's magazines that they look very young. So it's, it's ageism, actually. It's, it's basically saying that you should be going to the office wearing this suit, but you have to look like you're 16 years old. Am I, am I right with that? Or am I right about that? And even worse, they use very young models in anti-aging ads, you know, so that there's a, you know, this cream will prevent you from aging and it's being used on somebody who's certainly hasn't faced any issues about aging yet. Um, obviously, all the anti-aging cream stuff is ridiculous. I mean, none of it works. If anything, it's sort of like diet products. If there was if there was a product that really did um, work as a diet product or as an anti-aging product, imagine. I mean, <laughs> it would be everybody would be buying it and everybody would be satisfied. But instead, uh, you know, none of them work. So that keeps us on this endless treadmill of keep hoping that there will be something. Have you noticed a shift since you started this work for the better for men, women, non-binary, transgender, like, you know, having everyone included, have you noticed it getting better? Or do you think with the way technology is advanced, it's getting worse for people? Well, many things have, have gotten worse. I mean, and, and certainly the tyranny of the ideal image of beauty is worse than ever before. And as you say, the main reason for that is the technology. The fact that uh, Photoshop now can be used to put, you know, to completely alter a woman's face or body. It used to be in the old days, they would use body doubles, you know, or they would use, you know, airbrushing or various um, things like that. But with Photoshop now, they can completely um, transform somebody. So, and what's happening is not only are uh, young women in particular exposed to these images you know, throughout the media and popular culture as always, but they're now exposed to uh, photoshopped images of their peers because they put you know, photoshopped images onto uh, TikTok and Instagram and all of the other um, sites. And that, uh, that in some ways is even more difficult because it's not just that these women end up comparing themselves to supermodels. They're comparing themselves to their classmates. Everybody knows that, in fact, these images are doctored, but somehow that doesn't matter. It still, it still ends up making women feel terrible about themselves. You talk about how in advertisement, 
and and again, forgive me, I, I am using women for the sake of just this conversation. Women move from being subject to object. And that that is actually dangerous. It increases violence. It trivializes violence. It makes it so a woman's body is a thing as opposed to her own. And do you have anything to say to that? Well, I think I was actually the first person to talk about the way in which the objectification of the body in advertising and throughout the popular culture created a climate uh, that in which violence and abuse became more likely. Because the first step towards violence, being violent to another human being, is to dehumanize that person, to think of that person as an object. I mean, we actually see this in wartime where the soldiers are taught to think of the enemy as less than human and to use um, various um, terms, derogatory terms for the enemy. Uh, and, and it's almost as if that has to happen before you're able to really, I think it's pretty much impossible to kill or injure someone whom you consider an equal human being, but it's very easy to abuse a thing. So the fact that girls and women are objectified throughout the culture in so many different ways uh, creates this climate in which it becomes almost normal uh, to look upon girls and women in this way. And so the abuse and the violence becomes the chilling, but really quite logical result of this kind of objectification. And again, we see this in, in all kinds of ways. I mean, we see it in advertising, we see it in pornography, we see it in TV shows and films and social media and music and everywhere. But uh, it's something that I, when I started saying that this was a problem, uh, no one believed that to be true. So when I started talking about these issues in the late 1960s, even other feminists would say to me, look, we can't deal with anything as trivial as advertising. We have important issues to deal with, like violence against women. And I would say they're related. You know, The objectification, uh, again, creates this climate in which violence becomes more likely. And that was a hard sell in those days. But I think now there's been enough research that people understand that, yes, this is true. I remember, and again, it was 1989. I was uh, in college. And you came to my school and you gave the talk, Killing Us Softly, and you showed all the the way that people are just mutilated for the purpose of selling an unrelated product, which is one of the things that adds to dehumanization and, and violence with women. And Jean, I sat there in awe watching this documentary and listening to you talk. I had never been, it's almost as if I suddenly became an educated consumer, which by the way, advertisers do not want. Suddenly I realized what was, what I was being subjected to. I literally sat in awe that entire, entire talk. And Truth be told, you're a little bit my hero because I I loved that. So it's it it was a pivotal moment for me when I saw that. Do you want to know something else though? That's really I I I I hope this doesn't offend you when I say, oh, and forgive me. Do you know what also added a little bit to my eating disorder? And by the way, you 
did not add to my eating disorder. When somebody has the brain, when somebody is locked into an eating disorder thoughts, images, whatnot, you showed a slide. And what you were trying to show was just like I said, the objectification, the dehumanization of women. It was to sell a product and they were like legs, I think, in a trash can. And because my mind was already in an eating disorder, all I could think of was, God, I wish I had those legs. Isn't that amazing? This is how powerful images can be. I sat there in awe. So my intellectual mind, my rational mind knew what I was seeing. And then an image came up on the screen and I went back into my emotional mind, my eating disorder mind. And I thought, yeah, but those are great legs. That's how powerful advertisement is. And I don't know if you have anything to say to that. I hope I didn't offend you. By no, saying. no, no, not at all. No. In fact, usually with the alcohol lecture, a lot of people would say, you know, that I, I understand it now much better. And I was triggered by those ads, you know, but, you know, I had to make a choice at some point. I still thought it was worthwhile to to educate people about this, even <clears throat> even if it did do that occasionally, can you say where you first saw saw me? Is, is that it? so? This is so when I I grew up in the Boston area, and mm-hmm. I went for the first two years to Endicott College, oh, yeah. which at the time was an all girls junior college. It mm-hmm. is now a four year co ed college. Um, and that was I I can remember the auditorium and and and. I can remember where I was sitting in the auditorium. And and again, I want to be very clear. You did not do something that triggered me. It is it was where my mind went. But this is how vulnerable people are when they're sitting in front of a television, they're sitting in front of Instagram, they're sitting in front of Snapchat. All these things, especially during the times of the pandemic. I remember it. I re- I remember it very very well. And and it was there there's I I spoke about this once in a, in another podcast interview which is and back then I wasn't aware of airbrushing. And now we know even younger about airbrushing. But there is a time in our lives where we're not we don't have that awareness, so we are looking at that body and saying this is the ideal body. Mhm. It's so complicated. I don't know if you have any thoughts. Well, um, I don't think much is, uh, other than what I've said. That I mean that these uh, that we're surrounded by, by these images, and that part of the problem is that this is the only image of what's considered acceptable. If it were one of many, that would be a different thing. But it defines not only what's beautiful, but also what's not beautiful. And so we all grow up, most of us anyway. Um, feeling that we're never going to be able to meet that standard. And for women, we're told that everything depends upon it. Our lovability, our desirability, our everything about us, our worth depends upon this. And so there's women are encouraged, um, urged to spend an incredible amount of time and energy and money, of course, trying to achieve this ideal, which is basically impossible uh, to achieve, certainly impossible to achieve for any length of time. You know, there's 
there's other parts of the documentary that I I wanted to bring about, and I don't want to I don't want to tell everything because I want people to see the film. I want people to see it. It is so powerful and it is so good. It actually, as you were saying, it 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 there's an increase in violence due to advertising. There was a perfume that you use called Fetish, and the ad read, apply it generously to your neck so he can smell the scent as you shake your head no. These are being put in magazines saying that even when you say no, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. How how do we work with this, with with this violence and advertisement? Well, even worse, that particular ad ran in teen magazines, and teen magazines are you know are targeting twelve year olds. So it's yeah, it was a um, it was shocking really, uh, and certainly perpetuated the myth that you know girls don't mean it when they say no, and it also uh, gave the impression that that boys were animals, and I say girls and boys because it was aimed at such a young audience. Uh, that boys are animals that they can't control themselves and that that's just to be expected. So that, you know, girls, women have to be always on guard against the advances of these um, very aggressive uh, men. So that that puts, you know, that makes it hard for boys and men as well. Uh, but there's just been, uh, there's so much violence against women in in advertising, certainly in pornography, which is in the United States our main form of sex education, and uh, it's so, uh, it, it's obviously sort of incredibly harmful. Yeah, I I want to go back to something that you said, and I know it sounds like it's a it's a hard term, but you were you were referencing alcohol and some of the talks that you gave, and you and I were talking before we started recording, and. We were talking about the difference between recovering from alcoholism and recovering from an eating disorder. And again, I know this is a hard term, but I have a short window of this interview. So what what is it that you wanted to say about that? Well, first of all, I'm I'm in recovery from alcoholism and I've been sober for 45 years. And uh, so I'm one of the lucky ones since... Um, most alcoholics never even get a shot at recovery. So I feel very, very fortunate. And I have many friends and certainly have known many, many, many women who are in recovery from eating disorders. And some of the friends uh, who are in 12-step programs, you know, I'm in a 12-step program myself. And uh, and so the program is very much the same. And certainly what it takes to recover uh, is very much the same in terms of the kind of inventories we have to do about ourselves and, you know, the uh, the way we have to, in, in a way, rewire our brains. So those are very similar. But I've always felt uh, that it's in some ways easier uh, to be an alcoholic than it is to be somebody in recovery from an eating disorder for the simple reason that as an alcoholic, once I realized that I really could not, I couldn't safely control alcohol, I just stopped using alcohol. Now, I'm not saying that that was easy, but for somebody with an eating disorder, you can't stop eating. You know, you have to you have to then every day and every minute of the day sort of balance, you know, what what you're going to eat. And and there's and in the same way that I mean, for alcoholics, 
yes, drinks are pushed on us all the time and there's ads for drinks all over the place and all of that, but nothing to compare with the way that food is pushed on, on us all the time and with the incredible numbers of ads and promotions that there are for food. So I just think it's, a, it's more difficult. I mean, hats off to everybody who's in recovery, no matter what. And, um, and, and, and again, in many ways, it's the, um, it's the same the same kind of steps are necessary in order to really be in recovery. But again, I just think it's, I think it's somewhat easier to be an alcoholic. I I think that it's, it is true where, whether you abuse food through restriction, binging, binging and purging, whatnot, you have to create a healthy relationship to it every single day. And that is different than refraining completely from right. alcohol. Right. I mean, for me, I'd spent years, you know, trying to have two drinks a day, you know, and, uh, or if I went out to just have two drinks and then stop, sometimes I could, but mostly I couldn't. But what I could do was to not drink alcohol at all. And once I knew that, and once I stopped this frenzy of trying to control it, and I just said, that's it, Alcohol's off the table a day at a time, um, and I'm just not going to have any. That then it became really actually not that difficult. But as you say, you can't do that with food. You have to sort of think about it, re recommit to it, sort of all the time, every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's very, it's 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 different, and it, it's, there are some things that are very similar, though. There are some feelings that you get from being an eating disorder behaviors that you also get from being on drugs or alcohol. So, it's a very very complicated or complex conversation. I want to go back a little bit to when you said that you were met with resistance at the beginning. I feel like I heard that, but I didn't really, I didn't really pause on that. What was it like to be met with resistance, especially from other women, with what you were doing, and how was it to pioneer through this? Yeah, uh, well, I think what, what's important, and it's a little bit hard to remember now because it was so you know half a century ago that that what I was saying then was really new. I mean, I, nobody else was saying it, and a lot of things that I said that were considered radical then are completely mainstream now. Um, such as the fact that advertising has an impact and that, uh, you know, that um, that this ideal image of beauty is harmful and that there's violence in uh, ads and that, you know, oh, oh, the eating disorders thing. When I talked about how the very thin models uh, were, you know, were part of the problem, you know, the fact that uh, girls and women were growing up surrounded by this one ideal body type. And oh my God, everybody, doctors, all kinds of people said, oh no, no, that, that that has nothing to do with it. In those days, they were saying that eating disorders were primarily caused, are you ready for this, by bad mothering. <laughs> Everything, of course, was caused by bad mothering, autism, schizophrenia. I mean, all the things we now know are simply not true at all, but that was what people believed a half a century ago. So when I was saying, but it's, you know, the environment, I guess what, what it is was a, there was a radical shift in public health, you know, maybe 30 years ago. And it used to be that if you're looking at a public health issue, whether it's alcoholism or eating disorders or uh, anything else, smoking, um, people would, would focus entirely on the individual. You know, well, it's a sick individual who just can't, the, al the alcohol industry would say, who just can't handle our product or something like that. And we've learned since, of course, that 
um, in, in a real public health model, yes, you've got the individual, but you've also got the environment in which the individual makes the choices. And you have the agent, whatever that is, the food or the alcohol or the tobacco. And all of those things are important. But 50 years ago, people didn't think, think so. So I was up against a lot of resistance. I mean, mostly people who said that uh, advertising was trivial and not important and didn't doesn't affect me, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so I did hear that. But also I was a feminist talking about sexism, you know, at the very sort of start of the second wave of feminism. So there was a lot of resistance just about that. I mean, in those days, it really still really wasn't entirely okay for women to speak in public, let alone to speak about sexism and about those kinds of things. So uh, I had resistance in, in that, that regard too. And, and so I also had a real terror of public speaking, um, even though um, I actually was always pretty good at it. That really doesn't matter. It's just most Americans fear public speaking more than death, which I find quite funny. Um, but I had something I really passionately wanted to say. So I've always loved Eleanor Roosevelt's wonderful quote, something like, you must do the thing you cannot do. You know, you must face your fear and do the thing you cannot do. So because I was so passionate about it, I just did it. I powered through feeling terrified. And, uh, and eventually got so, you know, I could get up in front of 5,000 people and my heart wouldn't skip a beat. But that was not the way it was in the beginning. And part of the fear was uh, from about the hostility that I was going to encounter. And what I learned was that I did encounter it. And in fact, every everything I dreaded happened, literally every single thing. Um, and it was okay. You know, I still got through it. So I, I one of the things I always do or often do when I speak is tell the audience that at some point, particularly because I want the young women to hear that it's normal to feel afraid <laughs> about this. And it's really important that we all speak up, find our voices and speak up. It is, it is really an unbelievable story narrative of how you began, got to where you are. I, and, and I know I'm working backwards in this interview, but what started it? Were you looking at ads? Were you suddenly seeing things from a different perspective? Like, how did this all come up for you? Well, it's so many things. I mean, in many ways, my whole life prepared me for it. But uh, so part of it was that um, experiencing, uh, you know, a whole lot of sexism. And I went to um, I went to Wellesley College, you know, wonderful college, and I had to go to secretarial school after graduation in order to get a job. Most of my classmates were getting married. I had no interest in that, so my options were very limited. I could be a secretary, I could be a you know waitress, I could could be a teacher, which eventually I was, but at the time I wasn't interested in that. So originally I was a secretary, and um, so there was that, and then I also. Um, did some modeling, and that was one of the few ways, in those days in particular, that a woman could make some money, and um, and it was very seductive. I mean, people, uh, there was no language like objectification or anything like that, so people thought that was something you should simply be grateful for. But I actually found it soul destroying. It was very awful work, and um, there was a huge amount of sexual harassment that came with the territory. So that informed me and it and I would do it for a little bit and then I would go back to being a waitress or whatever it was to make a whole lot less money but you know 
and still be harassed. But anyway, uh, so I think by the time I came to look start collecting the ads, all of those things, I was then involved in the in the second wave of feminism. I got into that right away. I was I was in the anti-war movement, like many people my age. And um, so I was in the anti-Vietnam War movement. Then I was in the women's movement. And and I had these mindless, stupid jobs. And one of them was putting ads into a medical journal. In this case, it was The Lancet, a British medical journal. And one of the ads was for birth control pills. And it was so insulting to women. It was just breathtakingly insulting. And I thought, there's something wrong with this. And it's not trivial. This is there's something going on here. So I took it home and put it on my refrigerator with a magnet. And then I just started collecting other ads. And as I said earlier, I never expected to make a career out of it, but I just was interested. And eventually I had enough that I could start to see patterns. I bought a camera. This was in the days before scanning. And I bought a camera and a, and a macro lens and a copy stand. And I turned the ads into slides and I put together a slideshow. And that was and, and it turned out to be extremely effective that people really felt after they saw it, what I hear more than anything else is I never looked at ads again in the same way. And so eventually I took it on the road and, you know, and then turned it into a film. I also want to say one of the things that you bring in all your talks is you also have a sense of humor. And that is really important when we're talking about such a heavy, you know, difficult topic. And if it's okay, I'm going to give an example of your sense of humor. You were talking about a hair stylist product, hairstyle product. And what you were saying is, is this is the difference between advertising of for women versus men. And you were also very clear, this was not the same kind of equality that you wanted for men to bring men down to where women were brought down to. But let me, let me read this ad to you. So you were giving a talk and you were saying how there was a hairstyle and they were saying, are your breasts too big, too saggy, too pert, too flat, too full, too far apart, too close together, too A cup, too lopsided, too jiggly, too, I can't even read this one that I said, too padded, too pointy, too pendulous, or just too mosquito bite. This was for a hair product. And the way you turned it is they would never say for male genitalia for a hair product. Is your genitalia, is it too small, too droopy, too limp, too lopsided, too narrow, too fat, too jiggly, too pale, too pointy, too blunt, or just two inches. You were saying they would never say that about men. And that wasn't the equality that you were looking for. Like I said, bring it down to where, but that was the difference. That's, that was how the difference that it was, it was actually, it, it just was okay to, to just completely minimize women and it wasn't happening to men. And what are your thoughts about that? And that that's funny. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Yeah. The first time I did that, I thought this will either be the end of my career or it'll be the funniest thing I've ever done. Uh, and it was, um, yeah, audiences loved it. <laughs> and it's been 
that, that was something I, I continued to do. And I also think that having a sense of humor or using humor in my presentations was incredibly important uh, to their success. Because in those days, people were also saying feminists have no sense of humor. So people would come to my lecture and they'd expect to be harangued and they'd expect to have somebody grim telling them all this stuff. And the fact that the lectures were very fast moving and that they were entertaining and that they were funny, um, I think just really took people aback and surprised them and made them pay attention in a way that maybe they wouldn't have. Now, in terms of having a sense of humor, I have three brothers. I grew up with three brothers. So having a sense of humor was necessary for survival. <laughs> and my brothers are all very funny and we and that's sort of how we communicated. But I think that it was it was very important uh, in the in in my lectures and in my films that uh, that, and also I was encouraging people to ridicule the ads, to laugh at them and to ridicule them and to, um, you know, to make fun of Madison Avenue. And I thought that that would be a healthy thing for people to do. So, And this is this is also where you talked about that products were being advertisement advertisers were not not talking about a product. They're they're not talking about a hair product. They're talking about a woman's breast size. And it's basically like if your hair looks good, it doesn't matter if your breasts are too small or too big or too it's as long as the hair looks good. And so it again, it just dehumanized women and minimized them. And I it's it's I just think it's really, really powerful. What do you notice today in advertisement? Oh, so much. Well, for one thing, the whole landscape of advertising has changed so much because of social media. So that most people today, I mean, when I started out, I was using print ads, you know, and certainly young people today don't see ads through print. Um, they see ads uh, through social media and they're very specifically targeted. One of the things that social media enables advertisers to do is to zero in on us very, very narrowly and very specifically. So the and the psychological research that advertisers do has gotten much more sophisticated and they can do focus groups now and show what what parts what part of an ad lights up our brain, you know, even if we're not aware of it that we have an emotional response to. So it's the advertising is much more sophisticated, it's more ubiquitous uh, than ever before. And that's all the more reason why I think it needs to be um, studied that we need media literacy to help people to really process this and to learn how to pay attention and to be less easily influenced by it. You you said advertising tells us who we are and who we should be. It's a powerful, powerful statement. Well, I think I think it does. And I also said somewhere along the line there that ads sell a lot more than products. They sell values and they sell images and they sell uh, definitions of success and romance and sexuality. And perhaps above all, they tell us what's normal, you know, so they they normalize uh, often very, very harmful attitudes and make it seem as if these are all perfectly OK. You know, everybody feels this way. Everybody thinks this way. Does the advertising agencies, do the 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 community, do they take any 
I don't know if I want to use the word responsibility because it's not my place to, but do they, do they take any accountability for what they're doing or is that just their business model? If that's and, but certainly there are some people within the field who do and who, um, there's a wonderful organization called the 3% Project, which was started by a woman, a friend of mine named Kat Gordon, and she's a creative director in advertising and she, uh, the 3% referred to the fact that at the time, uh, just 3% of creative directors in, in advertising agencies were female. <laughs> now it's soared to 11%. So hardly anybody. But so certainly there are people like Kat and other people who are who are concerned about this. But I would say in general, you know, in the world of advertising, as in, in general, in the world of corporate America, profit is what matters, you know. And if something is going to sell, uh, even if it's going to be harmful, um, then too bad, you know. I mean, what's important is the shareholders, and what's important is how much money we all make. And we see this very obviously with certain products like cigarettes and alcohol, uh, and diet products and junk food. Um, but we also see it in general with just the sheer amount of advertising that we have, and the sheer amount of emphasis that there is on being a consumer uh, above all. And that that what's important is that we just buy as much as possible. That whether regardless of what we need, you know, or can afford for that matter. So it's a it's an underlying problem with capitalism, basically, you know, that they what capitalists needs to do, they need to create a huge market for stuff that is often addictive and often harmful. You know, you you also made a, a great point that we are so trying to be sold something, things that sometimes we can't even afford. Mm-hmm. Yet we feel that we we have to have them. We can't live without them. And so it it is on so many levels how much it penetrates our society. Mm-hmm. Well, the sheer amount of debt that most Americans have and how little uh, money in reserve most Americans have. I mean, it, and the I mean, especially at this season, you know, Christmas around the holiday season, the, the mad emphasis on just buying, buying, buying. Uh, whole lot of stuff and which is a lot of most of which is going to end up in landfills and you know anyway it's just uh um it's there's a problem with advertising and marketing that goes beyond the image of women that goes beyond selling products like alcohol and cigarettes and just has to do with um how this this much mindless consumption is destroying the planet jean i I wish we could continue this for a lot longer because again, you are somebody who has had a major impact and influence on the way I view the world, the way I view myself, the way I try to work with my clients with eating disorders, but we do have to start coming to an end. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share anything that you just wanted to say before, before we wrap it up? Well, I guess one thing that I'd always like to say to any any place where there's an audience is that um, recovering from whatever your addiction is, you know, um, is wonderful and it's difficult and challenging, but it really does bring an incredible amount of joy and freedom. And I mean, I'm somebody who felt when I was drinking that I literally could not live without alcohol. And I used to say sometimes, you know, without alcohol, I'd put a gun to my head. And alcohol was, in fact, the gun, but I didn't realize that. And so, and I know my friends who are in recovery from eating disorders, it feels impossible, but it is not only possible, 
it it opens up an entire new kind of way of life that is joyful. Jean, from the bottom of my heart, I really, really want to thank you for being part of the podcast and, and agreeing to come on the show. So thank you very, very, very much. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you. All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.